Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. and freedom will be defended. This next exclusive episode of Protect and Serve features one of the UK's former leading senior police officers, who shortly after being knighted by the now King Charles III for his work in counter-terrorism, moved his family across the world to Australia, where he took up the role as Deputy Commissioner of Victoria Police. Sir Ken Jones, recipient of the Queen's Police Medal, had an incredible British policing career where he faced many challenges, challenges which he rose to and achieved incredible success. However, his greatest challenges were yet to come when he took up his new posting in Victoria, Australia and shortly after taking up his post identified that all wasn't well within Victoria Police and that serious errors had been made in the recruitment of a barrister Nicola Gobbo as a human source. And furthermore, the suspicious circumstances around the murder of Carl Williams also raised serious questions as to those involved in the underworld figure's death inside one of the most secure prison facilities in Australia. All this and much more on this exclusive podcast interview with Sir Ken Jones, QPM, on Protect and Serve. Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve. And again, I've got an interview lined up this morning with a gentleman that I've been very, very keen to talk to for a while. We connected with each other a few months ago. We have 
A lot in common in terms of our time in Australia, at different ends of the policing spectrum. There's no doubt about that. Him as Deputy Commissioner of Victoria Police, me as an operational police sergeant in the remote outback towns of Queensland and South Australia. But we've both returned uh, home to the UK where we continue on our love for policing uh, and uh, we very much in looking forward to this conversation together. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome to the podcast Sir Ken Jones, recipient of the Queen's Police Medal. Ken, welcome to the podcast. Good afternoon. How are you? Oh, hello, Ollie. Thanks very much for having me on. Uh, can I just say I've enjoyed listening to your podcasts and it's quite an honour to become subject of one. So thanks for having me. No, it's an absolute privilege. I'm really looking forward to delving into your careers here in the UK, a period in Hong Kong, and then your time in Australia. But before we get anywhere near those particular geographical locations, I want to ask you, why did you pick policing? What's the, what's the start of your story about? Well, I, um, I left school thinking I wanted to be an engineer. Very interested, still am in mechanical things, all things steel. So... Where I came from in, the, in Mid Wales in the UK, there isn't much, well, there was hardly any industry at all back then. So if I wanted to develop a career in that way, I would need to move to the Midlands or the North. And that's one of the reasons why I went to Sheffield, uh, because that's where the heart of the steel industry then was. And I was um, going to tech college and I wanted to continue those studies as well and eventually got some qualifications in that. So that's, I drifted up to Sheffield. Um, we had some relatives there. But I quickly realised, because uh, I wasn't a newspaper reader then, and I was only a, a teenager, uh, the steel industry was actually imploding, and it looked like within five to ten years there'd be very little of it left. And that turned out to be the case. So I got made redundant twice in fairly rapid succession. So I decided I didn't, didn't want to go back to Wales. I wanted to sort of try my hand at love living in the city, at something else. And I was walking past um, a police station one day, and there was an A-board on the pavement outside, done up in chalk <clears throat> they were looking for recruits and it's just a light bulb thing I thought why not <laughs> I, my dad's friends back in Wales who were police officers a lot of the police officers in the in the area I lived were actually old pals of my dad's and I looked up to these people they'd been they'd, they'd gone through a war and here they were sort of protecting us and keeping us safe and I thought why not give it a go and that was it Oliver I got no relatives in the police um, I hadn't really given it any thought at all, but I, I quickly seized on it as this is for me and I'm going to make something of this. So I, I walked in, signed up and the rest is history. And it's, the service has been embraced me. It's been incredibly good to me in good times and bad. And I've never looked back. That's an interesting question that you had no family or friends or close relatives that were part of policing. Often we see that as a almost a, a leverage or a handle which you know kind of integrates people or moves people into that direction because they've had that exposure. What was the what was the sense from family once you told them that you were going to be joining the police? Because often it can be a bit of a delicate subject in terms of people's caution around. Well, what does that mean for us as a family? You know, we have to watch our p's and q's now. How how, how did family react to such a big decision? Well, I think they were absolutely aghast um, that I decided to sort of switch horses, as it were, in such an abrupt way, but also incredibly proud and also. Uh, and worried for me, you know, could I do this? I've come from a small rural community. I was working in a very tough city. Um, you know, could I pull it off, frankly? And they were, they were kind of concerned. But also, I think that I demonstrated through my life, such as it was at, by that time, that I was capable of doing 
unusual things and grabbing at things, uh, learning how to do this, going off to see this concert off to the Isle of Wight when I was 15, 16, things like that. So I think they were kind of used to me um, doing rather odd things because let's face it, up sticks and off at 17 to go and live in a city away from a rural community uh, was also, had been quite an odd thing for them to get their head around anyway. Here I was nearly 19 and uh, oh, I want to be a police officer. I'm going to be a police officer. So, But there were mixed feelings, but pride was certainly fundamentally the, the, the best one of them. We talk a lot about in the podcast the complexities of policing, the vocation in terms of what we have to learn, legislation, policy and procedure. And during our training periods that we go through the academies and training colleges, we have to be able to regurgitate this legislation almost verbatim so that we can pass exams. How did you find the theoretical side and the practical side of your training period at the at the college? Um, it was... Um... The the total training period was two years back then, and you spent three months uh, residential um, away from, once again, away from home at Harrogate, actually. Uh, and I found it incredibly challenging, but rewarding. And I, it, it's imprinted on my mind. It was such a powerful experience. I was being taught by some sergeants, one of whom I went on to serve on the streets of Sheffield with, amazing people. And uh, it was it was it was something I was pretty good at, which is learning theoretical things, black and white um, things, as it were, like the law. There was very little of the grey then taught to us. We were taught the law, um, very little in terms of what the morals and ethics of it was, and that was a, then applied in a practical way in your in in the way that you delivered policing. And it was always impressed upon me, you know, that, that if it's against the law, this is how we act or we don't. If it isn't, it's nothing to do with us. And it was very, very much that was the service back then. So it, that changed, of course, over the next 10 or 20 years. But it was an incredibly um, uh, rewarding experience. And it was a, a, even though it was only a few months, it was months in which I grew significantly. Um, and I just saw this career unfolding ahead of me. And I thought, I've made an incredible, I've made the right decision, you know, and uh, I've never, as I said before, I've never looked back, Oliver. It's just been a great ride. Do you recall with great memories the day that you graduated, you issued your warrant card? It must have been an incredibly proud day for you and your family. Yes, it was. And uh, there we all were. We just marched around the parade ground to some rousing military music, which was then a feature of police training. Our boots were shiny. That's sort of all the toes on my boots so you could see your faces in them. But yes, my family was there. An incredibly proud moment. Um, and and I, I can remember it to this day. It was a very sunny day. Um, the pride and the sense of achievement. Uh, but also, as soon as I got back to Sheffield, it was, forget all about that. Now, this is when the real learning begins. You know, you've got two years probation. We're going to be watching you in every way, shape or form to see whether this you've made the right choice and we've made the right choice. But yes, that was a that was a terrific day, and there have been many terrific days since where something or other has, has, has happened that, uh, that I've, I've kind of celebrated. There is no better training ground, I think, for any sort of job that requires a theoretical training, you know, plumbers, carpenters, policing the same. Each has a component where you have theoretical learning to do, but there's no better training ground than doing it in real life out in the real world, and policing is no different to that. What was it like in those first two years being operational in Sheffield in the 1970s? You would have come across many challenging scenes, 
challenges of confrontation with individuals. How did you manage that all as a young man? I mean, that that was an absolute shock. I went to work in a suburb of Sheffield called Attercliffe, and it was an incredibly tough suburb. That's where all the major steelworks were, major industry. Tens of thousands then worked in that industry. And there seemed to be a public house every 20 yards. That was a tough working class community that, with all the challenges that went alongside that. It was a very tough masculine society too. There was quite a lot of violence in terms of um, domestic disputes, uh, in terms of fights within pubs, football matches. And coming from a rural community, it was an absolute culture shock for me, but it was one that kind of energized me and um, attracted me. It, it was different. And, and I, I sort of thrived on that completely different scene that I was by myself living in. And I was also becoming part of the police families, it were, and I felt it's embraced and I felt this is the place for me. I knew I'd found my niche. And obviously you have to establish yourself within the police culture, as it were. You were on, you were on a very tightly run um, group that worked shifts. We used to work three or four shifts a month. You're also part of a broader organization than a city police force. So you had to sort of navigate your way through that, which was pretty difficult because people, they didn't set traps, but they expected you to find your way through it without too much help. And also you had to then go out into the world and be sent to a uh, some sort of crisis within a family or to a homicide or a, a, a serious assault. And then you turned up this milk-faced um, police officer of just 19 and expected to actually quickly take control, decide what needed to be done and get this done. But I did find then there was much more respect for what policing was and much more deference to the role. And it allowed us new people to sort of quickly establish ourselves. So all this was just completely filled you as a young officer. And I hope that Young people joining the service today feel like exactly the same buzz that I did. Yes, and at that time, there were lots of, shall we say, the older stalwarts who were just about to leave the service said, oh, the job is uh, done for. They didn't say done for, by the way. You know, you've made a terrible mistake. And I've no doubt today, somebody will join, turn up at a police station, and they'll be told by somebody, oh, it's all had it. You know, you've made a terrible mistake. But uh, it turned out not to be the case. It was one of the best decisions of my life. When was the first realisation for you that policing offered both dangerous encounters where you often faced personal threat? I think without doubt there was a lot of violence then around pubs um, and around gangs of men and youths, and you'd often be pitched right, in, right into the middle of it. You learn very quickly you know, how to identify key people within a melee. You learn very quickly how best is it were not to confront somebody in a way that wasn't going to bring the assault and attack upon yourself. And these are incredibly, occasionally frightening moments. You know, I can recall being sent to uh, disturbances, mass brawls, and the minute you showed up, everybody, protagonist, turned on you, as it were. And it, it did. you had to learn how to handle that so that you didn't come off second, as it were. Because one thing you had to do, you had to resolve the situation and... Um, and it was, it was complicated. And the other thing I thought, those things were physical and you had to learn to handle that. And you had to learn to handle and control and contain your fear, you know, because uh, at the end of the day, none of us are heroes. We just did the damn best we could. But the other time when it was more psychologically challenging, you'd be involved in some issue concerning a family where some tragedy had happened 
there might have been sort of some sort of domestic dispute. And you realize as a young person just how complex life was. You, you look back through the lens of your parents' lives and your aunties and uncles, and you realize it was nothing like that. And that people were under incredible stress and trauma in terms of their debt, in terms of their family connections, in terms of crime and mistakes that had been made. And you had to somehow find a way through this and resolve this situation and everything had to move on. Um, and I found that much more challenging and much more debilitating at times, something that you would take home with you and uh, it would disturb your sleep, whereas the physical stuff, it was, it was something you could put behind you very quickly. One aspect of policing, which I think uh, certainly provides a significant challenge to individuals, because we're, I don't think we're quite sure how we're going to respond to it when we're confronted with it, and that's death and trauma. How did you manage such um, emotions in the early yeah. parts of your career? Well, there was a policy then of any new person at the police station. I was the only probationer they had at the, at the time when I was posted to Atticliffe police station that every suspicious death every sudden death every fatal road accident any and all trauma frankly uh, if you were available you were told you've got to go there and they'd send a car to take you there and let's 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 talk about people who've lost their lives you'd be expected to go to the mortuary you'd be told when the post-mortem would be and you'd be there to observe it and uh, your more experienced colleagues would stand back and see if you could handle it and how you'd handle it and you quickly learned you had to get get through this. You were on your own. There was no welfare support. You quickly developed uh, the, the classic British stiff upper lip and the poker face, as it were. And you contained the emotional distress. We obviously, we must have all felt, and I certainly did, when being confronted with these scenes. And you process them in, in ways now which look, you know, incredibly old-fashioned, like going for a drink with your pals, going to play some sport or brooding on them, you know, with internalizing them within yourself. And I know that we've come on leaps and bounds since then, but it did actually damage and traumatize a lot of young people that joined with me, certainly. Quite a few didn't make it past the first few months. And if you made it through your two years and you've gone through those trials of fire, as it were, but it, it was a very masculine culture and society was very masculine. And it was about manning up, as it were, and, putting on a brave face and sort of plowing through things. And you expect, you, you look within yourself, well, they've done it, so I'll have to do it. And this is how people develop. This is how people learn to absorb stress and distress. And of course it wasn't. And you internalize it and you push through it. And some of us got through it, thankfully, without too many scars, but it did take a lot of people out. There's no question about it. You moved after your period of training and time operationally into another operational area, but more of an investigative role as a, as a detective. Tell us about that move into that area. Was that, you know, there's so many different opportunities in policing. You chose to pick the more investigative route. What was the um, persuasion into that facet of policing? Yeah, in the round, I spent more time in uniform and that's so my heart and love for policing was and is frankly but also is very much attracted to the detective branches for the ability to actually take a long deep and hard look at a particular situation and see if i could resolve it for somebody for example a series of burglaries or a serious assault or as a detective on a homicide inquiry or some or something of that ilk 
So it was very attractive to me because one thing about being in uniform, and it's probably still, or it is the same, is that you're often sent from one place to another in, in, in rapid succession and delivering a service, but is it for the right depth, quality and quantity? Wasn't always. But as a detective, you did have the time to concentrate and focus on a particular issue, develop new skills, learn about forensic techniques, learn how to bring in lots of uh, talents and techniques from other parts of the service, to bring in intelligence, for example, to go out and knock doors, to go out and talk to various agencies. So that was something, I think, um, that really did and still does appeal to me, the ability to problem solve, but with the time and resources to get it done properly. And uh, and also, as I said, to learn and learn and learn. And, and, and it was probably the best way, I would say, that anyone wants to provide you know, satisfaction to victims. To be a detective is probably the best, the pinnacle, as it were. But my, as I say, my heart still lies in policing, particularly local policing, and that which is delivered through uniform branches. I want to talk about your period of on secondment to Hong Kong, which is a fascinating move because it's not just a move across a county or, you know, move down to the city or the big smoke, you know, down to where the Met is. You've gone international and you've gone over to Hong Kong during a period of, you know, um, it's a country full of culture. It's a, it's a it's a melting point of different flavors and smells and and opportunity. And and you chose to go there, you know, very early on in your investigative career. What was that like and what prompted such a big move? Well, I was, oh, as I say, I was um, always open to doing things. You know, I'm quite capable of, of, of doing something unpredictable, as it were. So my family would tell you that. And I remember seeing an advert in the then police review for investigators for the Independent Commission Against Corruption in Hong Kong. And within seconds of reading, it, I thought, this, this might be for me. Why not? Talked about it with my wife. She was as keen as I was. Um, I thought I was under no illusions about, well, this is really for people at, towards the end of their careers, frankly, uh, not, not where I was. But I thought I could learn so much here. I could have such a great experience. So I applied and um, the re- I, I, got, I was offered an appointment. I went with the blessings of my then chief and um, had, a, had an incredible time. And from where I was looking in Sheffield at that point, here was the developed organization that was there to tackle corruption. And I just thought to get involved in their operations, to become an investigator would be absolutely stunning as it was. What I wasn't prepared for was the assault on our senses that the day we landed in Hong Kong to be in, a, in an amazing um, varied culture that, that Hong Kong, that, the chi- that China is. Um, nothing could have prepared us for that. And it was absolutely out of this world. And the, I can still relate, I can still remember the buzz we felt as we drove through Kowloon, having just got off the aeroplane at Hong Kong, uh, to see the incredibly bustling streets tens of thousands of people out and about. It was just amazing. So we, we, all, we had a great time in terms of embracing a new culture, but also I had a great time in terms of getting involved in this uh, anti-corruption work, learned skills and techniques and talents that I was able to take into the rest of my policing career, but we just had a fabulous time. What's the challenges of working in a foreign jurisdiction um, with both British expats and uh, 
people that are you know local to the country there must be some different challenges in not only language but also culture and some of the and obviously you're, you're there as an anti-corruption task force so there's also there's also a great deal level of caution that i assume people are treating you with yeah absolutely we worked alongside uh, local officers of course we learned a good deal of cantonese one of the things i took into that um and i've taken it to other places that i've worked in the world is to say i haven't got all the answers you know that i'm not here to tell you there's a better way of doing this i'm not here to tell you how to do your job and i always place myself as it were at the feet of local people and said you teach me what you know what what i should do and i think that's one of the ways um i think i've passed it on to other people in a cricketing sense it's called playing yourself in you know you don't go for the fours and sixes until you've got a you've got a good eye for the ball you've got you've got the bowlers uh, well sussed and the field so it's about playing yourself in that's one of the things i learned and you, you need to be accepted <clears throat> by local officers and teams if you're going to be effective. And the other thing was learning about different legal codes, um, was learning about how the other agencies interacted, interrelated with the ICAC, particularly the Royal Hong Kong Police, as it was then called, because there'd been, a few months before I went out, there'd been demonstrations, almost a police strike, as it were, on the streets, um, uh, complaining about the way that the ICAC was operating. <clears throat> so that, that was you know, a very sensitive and difficult and delicate time. But um, the broadly, the broad population fully supported the ICAC. Corruption is a real problem in some countries, and it does eventually begin to drag down business. It drags down a nation's reputation and affects their economic, their cultural health. You know, it affects so many things. So there was, there was broad support, but it was a not an easy task to integrate yourself well and then and then become become effective. I set up an inquiry into a then uh, into a very large bank which which collapsed not long afterwards because of corruptions. It was run by a particular uh, prominent local family, and I needed all the help I could get then from local institutions, from local um, senior leaders within the legal profession, within business to get that to get that up and running. So I like to think I was effective at the time, but I was effective because I think I was open to learning. I was open to uh, developing enough trust and confidence in the people I worked with and for before I started actually you know, striding out on my own, as it were. But it's, uh, it's learning I took with me to other parts and other, and other tasks that came in the future. And then your return back to the UK and back to South Yorkshire, back to Sheffield, uh, and not long after returning, you return as a detective sergeant, but not long you move back into uniform as an inspector. So at what point did you realise that it was time for you to start evolving and start climbing through the ranks? Was leadership something that you kind of aspired to achieve from from the outset of joining policing? Or is it something that you just suddenly thought, you know, I want to start taking on more responsibility? Um, the, I certainly uh, embraced responsibility. I was a kind of a person... You know, one of my mantras was leave it with me. But I never, ever thought I'd become a chief constable. I'll be, I'll be absolutely honest with you, Oliver. I wasn't um, a special course entrant or accelerated promotion candidate. You know, I came up by the ordinary route. I was, when I got promoted inspector, I mean, this, the, people would be quite surprised to hear this. I think I've got 19 years servicing. You know, by then, some people are already chief officers. So I wasn't really, I didn't feel I was set for a career much beyond the sort of, I would say, superintendent level, um, if indeed I got to that level. So 
it was one of those things that just didn't drive me. It did later on. There's no doubt about it. Once I began to, um, I, I got to a certain level. I got to be superintendent, chief superintendent, and I realised I've got the bandwidth to actually take this further, and I could actually implement more of my ideas, more of my ideas and values and views and beliefs, particularly about localism, as a chief officer. And I thought this, I can do this. You know, I could do this. I, I've come, I've come to the party late, as it were, but I can do it. And indeed, I did. You know, in the late '90s, I went up for the strategic command course I applied. I was the only officer on my particular intake who hadn't been a member of any of the accelerated promotion scheme. So, so I, there, there's evidence there that I wasn't one of these people that joined with the intention and nothing wrong with that, becoming a chief as quick as possible. Um, but I did find it was for me. I found I could be very effective. I did have the bandwidth as it were, and I was able to push my ideas and views about localism, about values and leadership, you know, as I, as I went more and more towards the centre of the wheel, as it were, I always like to think of organisations as being, certainly police organisations are much healthier, the flatter they are. That doesn't mean accountability is weakened, but it does mean that there isn't any people sitting atop you. Um, and one of the things I used to always, when I went to a new organisation, I'd always ask for the the, the organisation chart, and the, the taller and weedier it was, the worse the problems were. There's no doubt about that. You know, everyone was looking up to somebody else never looking out at the, the, at the people who pay their wages. So I was always one of those people that I want to get towards the centre of organisation so I can have more of an influence and impact. It wasn't about looking for more power and authority over other people. Between 94 and 1999, when you took over the position of Chief Constable for Sussex Constabulary, um, your progression through the ranks is, I think we would agree, is quite a rapid one. But at the same time as taking on significant promotion and a lot of accountability for big portfolios, you were also spending a lot of time in your own professional development. You became a Fulbright Scholar in 1996, which is an incredible achievement. How did you manage both the um, the pressures of senior management in policing as well as continuing on with your, your own professional development? It's a difficult thing to to achieve. There's no question about that. But I have, I have, and I had a kind of a hunger and thirst for learning, for doing some, for doing new things, and for development. So, for me, it was an, I needed an outlet, if you like, for that kind of um, the drive within me, and um, and the services just provides people with so many opportunities for development. And I can't, I can't thank enough some of the people who've helped me along the journey, and also just what what a great ride it's been. And uh, I was always on the on the lookouts were for opportunities for development, for things I could do, as well as doing the best I could in the day job, as it were. And I, I think it's more to do with my personality. I, I used to find the time to do it. I don't, I'd, have gone, I'd have gone nuts if, if these opportunities hadn't been around, but they're there and they're there now. And I, I, it's just been an, a, a great organisation to be a part of for, for most of my adult life. And I'd like to think that I've put back as much as I've, definitely taken from it as well let's talk about your appointment as chief constable to sussex constabulary in 1999 um again you you took over a force which i think was in a little bit of trouble at the time and obviously you came in um with a vision to turning that around and getting back community trust was there a was there a was was there a moment when you were sitting behind that desk at sussex's headquarters and pinch yourself to think here I am. I'm the, the the chief constable of this police the, the, this police force, and 
and look where I've come from. It was it must have been an incredible moment, and 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 ultimately a realization of the responsibility you had. Yes, it. Uh, I would say from the moment when I was in the police authority sort of um, waiting room after we'd all been several other um, aspiring chiefs had come for an interview. There were deputies in other forces or assistant commissioners from the Met, and the door opened and uh, the clerk pointed to me, and that was it. Um, it was it was just an incredible moment for me, and I couldn't quite believe it. And as you say, that there were issues that were the force had got in conflict with the then government over a, a police shooting where a man had been unfortunately killed by one of our officers. There were significant budgeting issues. There were conf- there was conflict across the force with communities over closure of police stations. Um, you know, the, the place was in some disarray, let me say. And of course, the people delivering the service, they're not too concerned about who the boss is. They're not too concerned about what they're doing at headquarters, providing what they, the resources and support, the things that they need to deliver are actually with them. And they weren't at the time. So there was quite a lot to get my teeth into. But I've always thought from right when I was very young sergeant that one of the easy, one of the best ways to get into the weeds of an organization is to look at the problems and actually you can you can actually diagnose a lot of issues if you do that carefully and thoroughly that you can correct and put right so as a chief you know I looked at some of these issues as opportunities frankly to settle as quickly as possible certainly but also to do a lot uh, in terms of my learning about how the organization ought to be run things that needed to be changed and developments I could actually initiate because it's very important as you take on a challenge like that, that you set out some kind of vision, you know, that these words are awful, but basically what it is, well, what are you going to do for us? What's in it for us, basically? So, so I would say to the, to the cops and the support staff, I'm going to do my best to bring this force up to a level that it deserves to be at, to deliver the sort of service that the public who pay our wages deserve to get. And I'm going to do that through a reinvigorated local policing campaign and the same message to the community so that's what's in it for them so as i said by looking at some of the problems and resolving them and showing obviously um it's, it's a way of showing people this is the person who get his head into these complex issues can actually do something for us uh, but at the same time of reopening police stations at the same time reintroducing and reinvigorating a local neighborhood policing style which I went on to push very much while I was uh, the head of ACPO a few years later. Uh, so it, it was quite an invigorating time, and the force went from being pretty low in terms of its ability to detect crime, in terms of its ability to protect communities, to one that had a very, very high set of detection rates, was very efficient in terms of its um, finances. And also, we reopened lots of small police stations, you know, a thing that was unheard of then. And I'm di- I was kind of disappointed that I was one of the only chiefs, if not the, I think there were perhaps two or three others would claim to be the same, that had a completely opposite view to what was then the emerging culture of brigading um, staff into larger and larger police stations, more and more remote from communities. And I thought, this isn't right. You know, as I said earlier, Oliver, there are bad people in your neighbourhood and my neighbourhood who want to do bad things to us. And one of the most effective ways to contest that is with, an, with a, a strong local policing model, not some sort of symbolic show of uniforms. It's about having an integrated model with the right resources, the right intelligence, the right technology 
to be able to contest these local tactical threats. And the public will reward you if you can sort that out for you, sort that out for them. One of the biggest challenges for any chief constable is managing budgets, managing people. At Sussex, you had uh, you had 5,600 staff that you were responsible for. How do you prioritise the services that are important for you whilst also under the direction to make significant cuts? You have to then take a broad view in terms of what the community are, because then you could actually ask for more local taxation, more precept, for more of a style of policing that they might desire. So although there might be national um, strategic cuts in budget, there were, there were opportunities locally. So I was obviously pushing very hard on a, on a form of localism, and I was able to persuade the police authority um, to raise more local tax. And frankly, it was the cost of, um, you know, like a Mars bar a month for the local, for the average householders. Well, let me say, I went to a few very difficult public meetings and somebody shouted up from the back, he'd rather have the Mars bar. <laughs> but anyway, we, we did manage to get the, uh, the precepts up. So although we were losing national grant, we were raising money locally. So we were able to bring along the um, people of Sussex and reinvigorate their local policing because they were going to pay for it. We, we, we were able to con- convince them t- to hire more staff. So by the time I left the organization, it was 6,500. And that was largely as a result of um, more police community support officers, more support staff, as well as more police officers. So there are ways I think you can actually continue to develop and grow, even in times of, 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 of when things are contracting nationally. But the other thing, it was taking along the culture locally, that this is the right thing to do. This is the right way to go, to have a very granular um, in uh, local police service, even to the point where if somebody worked, I don't know, at, uh, at Battle, for example, then it said Battle on the side of their police cars and, and it, it identified the person driving that car as a Battle officer because I wanted, I didn't believe in these massive brands of policing. And I think the Mets brand is one of, one of its downsides in terms of delivering localism. So we suppressed as much as we could any, any talk of Sussex police and we used to boost as much as we could talk of the Brighton police chief, the battle police chief, and what have you. So, so yes, there was a challenge whilst things were contracting, but you don't have to give everything, everything up. And I always said the line in the sand for me is that my priority will be localism. And indeed, when it came to later years, investment was prioritised to protect localism. And at that point, you'd go in with partners, local authorities, businesses, anything, just to keep that local thing going. I think it's a tragedy what we see around us now. My nearest police station, for example, is 40 miles away. Um, there are several significant-sized buildings um, that used, police teams used to work out of in my area. They've been sold and never, never be recovered or retrieved. But what went with them was a huge amount of local knowledge and intelligence. And what's happened since is we've got We've got an absolutely dire detection rate for burglary across much of the United Kingdom. We've got a dire clear rate for lots of local crime, local, you know, local assaults, um, local criminal gangs and groups. You know, I have to say, in my view, I think they're having a bit of a field day because we've lost, we've lost grip of them. And yes, we've properly re- we've focused on response, but, but we've done it at the expense of effective localism, in my opinion. But that's just my opinion, Oliver. I want to talk about the the challenges and the support you get from home in such a... And we're going to go on to 
some even greater challenges when you're leading the counter-terrorism strategy for the UK. But before we move into that, I want to talk about the challenges and the support you got from family. Because I talk about a lot in the podcast that the people that allow us to do our jobs and not have to worry so much really about what's going on at home in terms of managing the household is our wives, our husbands, families, children, extended family – the support you must have got from your wife and your family at that stage must have been incredible. And I assume you're able to, I suppose, debrief to some extent to the point you could with your wife in terms of your stresses and challenges. Yeah. I mean, in terms of, um, okay, she keeps abreast of things that were happening then in law enforcement and is a, you know, is able to offer the right kind of support at the right sort of time, as it were, without us, being a kind of an overt police family. Nothing wrong with that, but that was never us. You know, we were involved in other things. We had lives outside the service, but she would be very much in tune with, oh, that's that's going to be a problem for Ken when this or that happened, you know, in the police authority or in government, or there was a story in the media. And yes, it's absolutely key that you have that kind of support because without it, you lose perspective. And I used to see it with, you know, some officers who didn't have that kind of support or, 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 was, or were living a single life. You know, they often didn't have the perspective and grounding that someone who had a really good, strong family around them did. And I couldn't have gone, I couldn't have moved in the way I moved without that support. And the other support that you get from, from, a, from a partner that understands and knows you well is they're very good at saying to you, that's not you, you know, when you said that or when you're planning to do this or the way you feel about that isn't you. Are you sure this is the right? And there are very few people in our lives that can give you that kind of accurate feedback um, that it just hits you straight between the eyes. And yeah, you're right. You know, I've been, I've got that one wrong. And I've always, the other thing I was always, and I have always been good at is I'd like to say, saying, to, you know, being honest with people about, I'm not, I'm not, I haven't got all the answers. And I'll make my share of mistakes and I'd like you to help me keep that to an absolute minimum. You know, and, and being open to people saying, boss, you need to think about that. You haven't really thought that through or this or that. And that saved me so many times. But fundamentally, that support at home, it does keep you going. And, if you know, you, you could have a really tough period at work, not just in a day, but might be over a week or a month. And you just can't wait to get back to the family, as it were. Um, and it's so restorative. And I really felt for officers who didn't have that. And there are lots of them, you know, male and female, who just didn't have that to go back to. And a lot of them resorted to having a drink or doing other things uh, to excess, um, which is which can be very destructive. Perspective's a thing, Oliver. And I think that having that, having that powerful buttress at home gives you perspective. Lose perspective, and you get focused on the wrong sorts of things. Or... Things that aren't that difficult suddenly get magnified and insurmountable. And I've seen it happen to so many colleagues. I'd like to move on to quite an intense period of your policing life between 2006, 2009. Arguably, we're going to talk about your period of life in Australia, which I think equally provides some significant challenges for you, both personally and professionally. However, you moved in as the chief constable and president of the Association of Chief Police Officers. You also headed up the UK's national counter-terrorism strategy in a period where the UK was suddenly facing some real challenges during that period with the 7-7 attacks and many other UK terrorism-related issues. 
Can you tell us about that move and what would have been a very, very challenging period operationally and equally in the background attending COBRA meetings and briefing very senior government officials on what was probably a tricky period in England's history and managing quite a significant threat? Well, in 2002, I uh, became a member of the National uh, Policing uh, Group that contests terrorism across right across the United Kingdom um, as, an, as, a, as a chief, but I'd also had some um, involvement in that as an ACC and a deputy, but certainly as a chief, I became a member of this group. In 2003, I, I took over the national um, policing effort against terrorism. And this was an odd time in policing in this country where we didn't really have a national police force of any sort. The Met's role wasn't as well defined as it is now. So chief officers kind of, kind of provided this informal, but it was a formal structure to contest many of the strategic crimes that were affecting the country at that time. And one of them was terrorism. And I realized fairly quickly that in the absence of larger forces, we, do, we needed to get some kind of regional operational intelligence capability to take this on. So I began to sort of push very hard on that so that when I got to be the president of ACPA, I was able to funnel more and more influence, resource, um, money into building what we now have, which is our regional terrorism hubs right around the country. And they're also now involved in... Um, organized crime we've got regional hubs that contest organized crime so i'm i've I've been pretty active in that in that field and i think it was my prominence in that field that that got other chiefs to support me to become the president of of acpo now of course it's the national police chiefs council although it's it has reformed and although it has modernized it's fundamentally providing the same sort of support for policing that it did in my time but that was an incredibly um interesting time of my life we went to live in london i was at the end of my contract in sussex they'd offered me another contract i'd been asked to apply for other forces um i'd indeed took a run at uh, the met commissioner's job and i, I ran ian blair a very close second in 2004 uh, but he was the right person for the job at the time the right fit but yes the job working in london representing the police service at that level was was a very very um energizing one and one that I really enjoyed. As you say, I had to advise um, senior government ministers, senior government officials, but also I had lots of contact with prime ministers, had private one-on-one meetings with um, the prime ministers of my time, gave them advice, took advice from them too. So it was a, it was a, a really interesting time of my life, but also to see the work I'd done in counterterrorism come to fruition in terms of the formation of all the counterterrorism hubs around the country and the cementing of the Metropolitan Police's role in terms of leadership of that structure. And of course, and back then, Mark Rowley, uh, who's now the Commissioner, so Mark Rowley was, in, was indeed one of the uh, people who took that role on. So it was a great time of, a great time of my life, incredibly controversial at times. It was a tightrope in terms of the way that... Um, we, we put our messages out to the media, but also I had to always constantly be looking at my constituency because it was an elected role uh, and, and, and chief officers around the country were met every month um, and actually offering them some leadership as well as bringing on a host of other programs. It's an incredibly important part of national life, pres- the president of ACPO, as indeed is the current chief of the National Police Chiefs Council. In 
2000 and 2009. Let's talk about 2000 first. You were the recipient of the Queen's Police Medal. And then 2009, you were knighted. You are Sir Ken Jones QPM. Tell us about those two days. Incredible achievements. There's, it must be an amazing experience to be rewarded for all your hard work and efforts and to be recognised. Yeah, I mean, in 2009, sorry, um, 1999, I was, I was put up for the Queen's Police Medal um, for, for the work I'd done on local, local policing, my usual sort of uh, soapbox. Um, went up to the palace to receive that medal absolutely stunning day um my mum went with me obviously my family um we just had a great time but i never thought you know if you look back a few years before that i was a sergeant and skipper on the streets of sheffield that here i was you know being um, presented with a medal by by her majesty her late majesty um yeah terrific time terrific time i'm so proud that my efforts and it wasn't just for me. People always say this, but it was the efforts of a number of people that were recognised at that time. But going forward, then I, I was cited in 2000, the citation in 2008 for my work on counterterrorism, particularly pushing through the work around the hubs. But once again, there was a small team within the uh, chief officers group who were, you know, they were, the, they were the, the real grafters and all that. And I gave the leadership and, and, and the push for it. But... Yes, to, to receive that, it was just out of this world, really. In terms of pride for from my family, for my wife, you know, th this was all. But it, but there was also a feeling of this is not the end, as it were. You know, you get these sorts of um, rewards at the end of your career. And I thought, my God, I'm getting that old. It might be all over for me. So there was there was a downside to the Niger thing, and I, I think I've said to you since that, um, in terms of the business I've I've run. It's something I don't talk about. It's something I don't advertise because it gives people, I, I don't give the impression that here's somebody who's going to charge us too much money. Here's somebody who's at, probably past their sell-by date. But yeah, but nevertheless, very proud achievements of mine. Who did you receive the knighthood from? Was it from Her Majesty the Queen? It was from uh, the then Prince Charles, the current king. So uh, you didn't, and you don't know, I think these days as well, there are several senior members of the royal family who actually present the awards and uh, you're not told until the day, you know, whether it be, now it would be His Majesty or um, Prince of Wales or there'd be a number of them who do this. But yes, it, it was actually uh, the king. And uh, at that time, I'd already been accepted for an appointment in Australia. So when I went to receive the uh, the knighthood, we had a, we had a chat about that. He's got a, an enduring um, affection for Australia, um, uh, King Charles, and knows quite a lot about it. So we had a few minutes on that, and I'd met him many times actually over the years previously, when he used to come to various events in Sussex. So uh, a memorable day. It was a memorable day, Oliver. You're listening to part one of my exclusive interview with Sir Ken Jones, QPM. In part two, Ken outlines the terrifying moment he and his family were told that a contract on his life was being sourced in Queensland, Australia, and that the then Deputy Commissioner now required a permanent security team to ensure his safety. Also, requiring Ken to now be permanently armed with a Glock 19 pistol. All because Ken made the decision to become a whistleblower as a result of what he believed to be serious corruption from within Victoria Police. So we used to go out walking at night. And one night we're out walking and um, 
my wife suddenly sort of, sort of screamed out and pointed. She got a red dot. Red dot landed on her, then on me, then on our dog. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production, hosted by Oliver Lawrence. Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley. Produced, edited, and sound designed by Jack Lawrence.